Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. In this episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, brought to you by the STS Workforce on Diversity and Inclusion, I have a conversation with Dr. Melanie Edwards. Dr. Edwards is a general thoracic surgeon with IHA Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and she is an original member of our workforce on diversity and inclusion. In this episode, we discuss Dr. Edwards' experiences as a woman of Jamaican descent growing up in Canada, her journey to the United States for her college and graduate education, her experiences in both academia and community-based practices, how leadership can foster a common sense of family, and other subjects. Thank you for listening. Dr. Melanie Edwards, welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Light. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by the STS Workforce for Diversity and Inclusion, and you are a founding member of the Workforce for Diversity and Inclusion. Yes, it's uh, been an honor to be um, chosen and participate in this important STS initiative. And I've um, enjoyed the work we've been able to do so far, and I'm excited to see what we're going to do in the future. And we started off as a task force, um, and which was the brainchild of uh, past president, Dr. Richard Prager. And I think it goes to show um, the STS's priorities to incorporate it into the bylaws of the organization into an actual formal workforce. When the SES made that decision, what went through your head? What, what were your thoughts in that matter? Well, I think it confirmed what I had already been seeing and experiencing within the STS, which is a commitment to um, broadening its scope and really focusing on doing meaningful work in the realm of diversity and inclusion. And I don't know if you remember, you know, when we had we're starting as a task force, there's always a little bit of maybe hesitancy or um, cautious optimism when, when these initiatives are launched because, you know, some of it can be done for the sake of doing it, 
but I think that was a, a clear signal that there was real meaningful work that we could accomplish and that, um, that the STS wanted to really do more and, and commit fully 100%. Yeah, so I mean, thank you for your, your hard work in the workforce and, and there's more to come. So you're at the IHA Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery Group at the Michigan Heart and Vascular Institute in Ypsilanti. So how's Michigan? Uh, you know, we're, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, how are you guys holding up? Um, we're doing okay. Um, we had experienced a, I would say, reasonable, modest, modest uh, first wave in the spring where we had shut down elective surgery as much of the country did. And we've learned how to, I think, navigate a little bit better. Our numbers in Michigan are increasing. And so elective cases are being canceled, including some of our heart cases, unfortunately. And the um, plan at this point is to try to keep it flexible so that we can get patients the care that they need but if we are out of ICU beds, then some of that unfortunately may be delayed. But fortunately, we're not doing the blanket shutdowns that we had done in the spring. So that's good. Now, Ypsilanti, uh, which is um, uh, near Ann Arbor, if, if I remember correctly, it does have a, a pretty high African-American population. Um, it does relative to um, Ann Arbor itself. And so um, it, it's a nice, um, nice place to be from that perspective. Um, our hospital system serves Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor, as well as um, some of the surrounding counties. Um, and, you know, we even get patients from what they call here the UP, which I learned is called the Upper Peninsula. This was my year to go exploring up north, but COVID has, you know, delayed that a little bit. Yeah, I knew that Ypsilanti, I lived in Ann Arbor for two years for a fellowship and yeah. um, down the road. And I knew Ypsilanti had a, a high African-American population because I wanted to make a sweet potato pie. So I went to one of the, the, the big grocery store chains uh, in Ypsilanti and they were all out of sweet potatoes. They just had one couple stringy ones left. Yeah. So I said, well, wait, maybe I'll go to the same chain in Ann Arbor and there was like plenty of sweet potatoes there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And there's actually a museum here. Um, one of our nurses actually gives tours um, on points on the Underground Railroad um, uh, relative to this uh, area. So uh, there definitely is a thriving population. So given that, uh, that that um, you know, robust uh, African American population, you know, with COVID, and we do know that that um, uh, Black African Americans and other communities of color are disproportionately affected in regards to mortality from COVID nineteen. And then your sort of experience with thoracic oncology and the the known disparities in thoracic oncology. Have you seen sort of that 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 compounding of disparities and and how do you manage that to guide your patients through this crisis? You know, it's interesting, even though we, or health system um, is present in Ypsilanti, I don't know how well our actual community is represented in our lung cancer patient population. 
I think definitely within COVID, within emergency care, within a lot of the other kind of more urgent healthcare needs where patients are coming in through the emergency department. Um, and I think that's something that our health system recognizes. And um, so we actually now have recently formed a working group on diversity and inclusion within our health system to address some of those issues. Um, and it's, I don't think just uh, related to our system, I think it's also statewide. As you know, Michigan, um, is part of a collaborative. So all the cardiothoracic surgery uh, programs in the state um, can uh, submit data, which we review biannually. And um, in our review, we also noted that um, there is not much representation within African-American populations in operated early stage lung cancer within our state, which has been shown elsewhere, as you know. Yeah. So we're going to get to more on your current position, because uh, I know you've like other cardiothoracic surgeons, such as Rich Prager and others, you've gone from the academic realm uh, to the employee community-based practice realm. And so I wanna get more of your insights on that. But before we do that, let's get to your sort of origin story, uh, your sort of superhero origin story, uh, which I didn't quite understand or knew that you are Canadian and your family is originally from Jamaica, moving from Jamaica to Canada, and then from Canada back to Jamaica, and then from Jamaica back to Canada. Tell, oh, me, yeah. tell me a little <laughs> bit about that sort of table tennis travel itinerary. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So um, as you may or may not know in the, um, I guess, I don't know if it's similar to as in the US, but in the uh, 60s, there was a pretty uh, robust migration of um, um, African descent or uh, individuals or you know, um, black people from the colonies and they were British colonies at the time. Most um, countries hadn't gotten their independence yet That's to England hard. initially. Yeah, and so um, so my you know, extended relatives were part of that and then many of them moved to Canada. So by the time my mother um, was in that wave and, and my father, you know, most of their family was in Canada. And so that's, that's where they went um, and uh, finished their education, undergraduate worked and um, decided to move back to um, Jamaica initially um, because in Western Canada, they didn't really feel well represented. Um, I was the only black kid in school and, um, and so it just seemed like a better move to, to go quote unquote back home. And then, you know, for other reasons, we ended up moving back to Canada just um, after I finished high school. So the, you know, it's interesting, you have the, the sort of the, the race and ethnicity element. Um, and you mentioned your only um, um, black child in your school. Uh, tell me a little bit about sort of the Commonwealth element? Is there uh, uh, any um, nuance from being from one part of the Commonwealth of Jamaica in another part of the Commonwealth in Canada? Or is that really um, not an issue or not a thing? Interestingly, I think it is not dissimilar to migrating within the United States as a minority. Um, you're still a minority. Um, I think the same disparities still exist in that um, aspect. 
Um, and so the Commonwealth is not necessarily a melting pot, but more of a amalgamation of different elements. And you will find in Toronto that those different elements maintain their identities quite strongly. Um, so the communities maintain a Jamaican identity, a Guyanese identity, a Trini identity, um, a Southeast Asian identity, um, which makes for a very um, interesting, diverse and vibrant culture because you know Toronto is a place where you can find everything that you want but the um, cultural identities are still maintained well enough that um, there's different at least in the first generation you know as people move through there's kind of more melding within the yeah. uh, um, different populations and so I think the story is still being written there yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess as the generations go on and everyone becomes a Maple Leafs. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. The Raptors. Now, how'd yeah. you end up in, in the States? Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, when we left Jamaica, I'd finished um, high school there, which is after what y'all call 11th grade here. And um, after you finish in the Caribbean, you sit what are called your O-level or they um, gotten a Caribbean version instead of exams. And then you either uh, go work, you go to um, trade school, or you sit for your A-levels before you go to college. Um, having moved before the A-levels, I hadn't really done grade 12. So in Canada at the time, there was uh, what, we, what was termed grade 13. I think they've since banished it. And you had to do that before you went to um, um, undergrad. And um, at the time I was coming from 11, trying to go through 13. So I tried to mesh 12 and 13 in one year. I was pretty ambitious. Um, <laughs> and um, at the time it seemed like um, if I didn't get through as fast as possible, you know, I would be ancient by the time I got to medical school or finished. So, you know, I, I decided rather than take an extra year, I would go to the States to go to college at age 16 because, you know, I was going to be so old. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, that's what you call warp speed. That's uh, with, with 18 being ancient, I guess 16 is, uh, is, is pretty advanced. And so, so you went to a historically black college uh, university, HBCU, where, where did you go? Uh, it's called Oakwood College in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, and then what motivated you go to an HBCU? You know, that's an interesting question. I think at the time it seemed like a um, more, comfortable place to be um, and um, within, within the options that I was looking at, it's also a denominational school. Um, and so from those options, which was what my family really supported at the time, um, it, that, that just you know seemed to me to be the logical choice. Um, I, did not necessarily look at it through the lens of long-term career planning because no long-term career planning was not something that I had anyone who knew anything about, you know, at, at the time within my family or immediate uh, family, friends or circle. 
you know, many in our audience are probably not familiar with uh, uh, HBCUs, um, but there's a, a, a vast uh, tradition, not only as you might expect in the liberal arts, but then also the sciences. And then specifically in medicine, you know, you have Howard uh, University and uh, Meharry and yeah. um, uh, Drew and other HBCUs throughout the United States. Talk a little bit about the, the HBCU experience and life as a pre-med there and how it prepared you and equipped you uh, for your current career paths. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, um, interesting concept and idea. And certainly that network, as you mentioned, also includes Morehouse College and um, remains quite vibrant today. Um, I think each school is maybe a little bit different. And so within our um, school, there was definitely a you know, strong contingent of pre-med students. Um, a lot of us went to Loma Linda, which was an affiliated college, which is where I ended up going to medical school. And um, I think the, the preparation was one that um, certainly um, tried to get you, you know, those building blocks. And um, I think having the connections with Loma Linda was helpful in that they had summer programs for, you know, students who, who wanted to get some, you know, undergraduate exposure, which certainly um, I took advantage of and which was helpful. So you, you mentioned you went on to med school at Loma Linda uh, in uh, Southern California. And then you went on and did your general surgery residency at the Beth Israel Deaconess uh, Medical Center, Harvard Medical School. You're talking a little bit about pipeline programs. If I'm not mistaken, you participated in the Harvard Visiting Clerkship Program that was ran by Joan Reed and her office. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. I was on the uh, gold service at the time. So that was a hepato-pancreatico-biliary um, service with uh, Dr. Steer and loved it. You know, I mean, it was, it was everything I hoped surgery would be and um, dug my heels in and, you know, just kind of threw myself in 110%. And so that's, you know, where I ended up going to residency. So how did you find out about that pipeline program? And do you think you would have picked or decided to, to go to Beth Israel Deaconess if you had not had that early exposure? Oh, absolutely not. No, no. I mean, I found out sort of, um, by the way, my um, roommate also participated in the program. She um, rotated in OBGYN at Mass General. So we ended up going together and um, it, kind of filtered through, you know, we did not, you know, and this was in the years before the internet was, you know, as robust as it is. I don't think we even had Google at the time or it was in its infancy. So you found these things out by either people who had gone through them before um, and, or, you know, um, or individuals. And I actually, you know, if I think about it, I think one of our college mates had actually gone through a similar program or knew about it. And yeah. so that's how we ended up finding out. But um, that network was not as easy to navigate as it is right now. Yeah, it's, it's 
tough to navigate a, a network. So, you know, tell me a little bit about Boston, you know, um, was it a, a transition coming from Southern California and the, uh, the, the, the plenty of sun and, and vitamin D to, to Boston and, and a little bit of, uh, overcast and then, you know, having to watch the Patriots. Yeah, it's interesting. Although when I was in Boston, that's a year, that's when the Patriots started winning, um, for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it was different in multiple ways. There was a weather, which, you know, it's fine, whatever. I live in Michigan, so I'm kind of over that now. Um, and when I was at Loma Linda, there was a, a cohort of us who had gone to the same undergrad, actually. And so, um, so that was another transition because, you know, I, you know, was the only person there. Um, the um, residency was was not particularly diverse at the time, which um, I think has um, changed. And um, one of our own members um, is now a their chief you know, diversity officer within the Department of Surgery. Um, so certainly things have come a long way um, from where they were at the time. Now, you wanted to do pediatric medicine as a medical student, but you ended up surgery. So how did you not end up a pediatric surgeon? And what led you to cardiothoracic surgery? Well, it's interesting. I wanted to be a pediatrician when I was in, um, in grade school. Uh -huh. um, and then... Um, by the time I got to college, I was more enamored with surgery. Uh, when I was a um, undergrad, I spent a summer on the plastic surgery service and it was just fascinating, it was just wonderful. But I, I knew I would never do cosmetic surgery. It, it was not a great fit for me um, personality wise. So I went into general surgery thinking, you know, we'll keep our options open. You know, I was a medical student who loved urology and loved ENT and, you know, it was, it was all uh, loved neurosurgery, you know, it was yeah. all great. Even ortho, actually, I really liked ortho more than I thought I would. Anything and um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Doppel, needle driver. Yeah. And, and I was, I was hooked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, thoracic was an interesting transition because when I, you know, my first two years, it was still, well, you know, I'm not going to do general surgery, but I really liked foregut surgery. I liked laparoscopic surgery, you know, you give me a Nissen any day and I'm a happy camper. Um, and the, or my first rotation on cardiothoracic was the cardiac intern. Right. So that, that was, that was pretty, um, that, and that was before services had a lot of mid-level support. Um, so as you imagine, it was like, there, there was no inclination of going into cardiothoracic surgery when I was an intern for sure. But uh, spending time on the thoracic rotation, um, the attendings were great, you know. Um, they were some of the smartest and, and, you know, all our attendings were smart, but really thoughtful in, in the approach to lung cancer. You know, it all seemed very interesting and different. Um, you know, we'd sit in these multidisciplinary conferences and with radiation oncology and radiology and everybody would look at the films. And I was like, oh my God, this is just wonderful because from an academic standpoint, um, you know, each case had its nuances. EGFR receptors were just coming on the scene. So 
um, thoracic oncology just really seemed exciting and fun. Who, who was there at the time? Um, so Simona Shiku was there, um, yeah. and then Malcolm DeCamp came in, um, and then Robert Thur was there. He, you know, has since retired. So, you know, all giants. Um, I think I missed uh, Jola Cicero by a year or so. So great group, wonderful group. Yeah. So then you went on to SLU, uh, St. Louis University for fellowship. Yep. And uh, upon graduating from St. Louis University, uh, your first position was in New Orleans, correct? Yeah, that's and correct. So there you met the challenge of working in thoracic surgery in a city that was just underwent one of the greatest natural disasters in our nation in Hurricane Katrina. Tell me a little bit about that experience and and the challenge of building a thoracic practice in a community that's rebuilding. Yeah, that was an that was an interesting experience, especially one you know kind of fresh out of training when you're just kind of there with um, with a population that has traditionally also been underserved at LSU. Um, they had pre, prior to the storm uh, worked out of what's called Old Charity Hospital, which um, you know has never been reopened. But the hospital there was a you know thousand bed behemoth split by LSU and Tulane, and cared for the patients um, of the city who you know were poor and did not have good access to to healthcare. And so um, post Katrina, the the challenges of trying to take care of that patient population with now probably half of the space, half of the resources, um, just simple things like, you know, getting somebody to CT, um, PET scans, you know, those were all really um, interesting things to try to navigate, um, you know, patients who have been um, not necessarily treated well by the societies or the uh, systems and institutions with which they had to interact, um, I think were probably somewhat reluctant to, to come in unless they really had symptoms. And so it was a lot of symptomatic later stage disease. Um, and um, it certainly provided an opportunity to try to figure out creative ways to take care of patients. So, you know, I started a multidisciplinary clinic because, you know, there's no way that we're going to reliably get people who have limited access to transportation, um, you know, difficult contact to multiple appointments. So I said, well, we're all just going to figure out a way to see everybody together, whether they're an L or a T, because there were two separate clinics, mm -hmm. but we had to have one clinic and we will, <laughs> we will, we will figure out how to work together to, yeah. to make this happen. And, you know, to the credit of the providers who all uh, banded together to really do this, you know, we pulmonologists would come, we'd get our e-buses scheduled. And so, um, so it, it, it was a challenging, but definitely rewarding experience. So, you know, bringing that sort of high level skilled uh, thoracic surgical ability to the community, what was your reception by the community? And I imagine, um, you know, you being the, a clinician that 
whose face the community actually recognizes and um, feels familiarity with? What, you know, what was sort of your reception by that New Orleans community? I mean, it was wonderful. You know, I mean, I think, you know, my um, patient population were, you know, the patients of the city. So, you know, we had, you know, musicians and, you know, just basically um, everyone. Um, and, 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 and those are the care environments where you really feel like you're connecting with your patients and you're able to really make a difference um, and offer them, as you mentioned, you know, a thoughtful multidisciplinary really approach to say, just because this is an indigent population, quote unquote, doesn't mean they shouldn't still have the access to standard of care oncology uh, treatments and multidisciplinary care. Do you think your understanding of the community sort of raised the game of your colleagues as well in regards to that intercommunity relationship? I mean, I think it, to my colleagues' credit, I think we all kind of understood or patients and, you know, from forming individual relationships, you form an understanding of, of that community. Um, and, and so we were all kind of, quote unquote, in the trenches in that sense. Um, so I, it wasn't necessarily a, a difficult, you know, convincing of the minds to, to understand that. So that uh, when you you moved on from New Orleans and uh, uh, sort of gave up the gumbo and the uh, the pralines, um, I still go back for it though. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And then um, you, you must have like a you know Cafe Du Monde on speed dial or or, or they give a beignet. And then you moved to St. Louis and you went back home to your alma mater to St. Louis University and partnered with uh, past SDS president Dr. Keith Nonheim. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the opportunity presented itself at a time when I uh, was ready to make a transition. Um, certainly, uh, Keith is a great individual to, he was, you know, a great person to train with. And so um, the opportunity to work with him and, you know, help him build his practice, his partner was retiring at the time, uh, was one that, you um, seemed like a natural choice. So, um, so yeah, I went back. So Keith, uh, Dr. Nonheim was president of the STS, was it two years ago? Or? Yeah, two years ago. And um, one thing I noticed when he was president at the annual meeting, I noticed that you had a great and genuine relationship with Dr. Nonheim's family. It seemed that you and his son and, and daughter-in-law had a, a, a really genuine heartfelt relationship. And I figured that must be sort of reflective of Dr. Nonheim's leadership style. Um, what, what did you learn from his sort of leadership style to, to promote that sort of um, togetherness really? I think the um, one thing that is is notable for Keith is that he really looks at his colleagues as family, and um, and treats them as such. And so and so, you know, I know all the Nonheim family. You know, it 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 was just 
really natural. And, and I think that's an important um, lesson. And I think we all kind of know it intuitively. I mean, we spend more time at work, you know, than at home, you know, yeah. most of us do. And so, or work families become family really. Um, and we go through um, challenging times together, you know, we'll have, you know, routine days, but sometimes our days are difficult. Sometimes our cases don't go well and that's hard on everyone. And so we're not also a team, but also a family because, you know, we try to support each other, try to support our teammates. And, and that's something that I've been fortunate to uh, experience um, in my career. And even, you know, now currently, um, our team is, uh, you know, we have a separate, we have a, a specific OR team for cardiothoracic surgery. So, you know, we're working with the same nurses, the same uh, surgical techs um, day in and day out. And so you do want to make sure your team is, is whole as much as they can be in these difficult times. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a theme that I've, I've been hearing from um, uh, multiple different people in this podcast is the, the concept of team and um, whether they're adult cardiac surgeons or general thoracic surgeons, uh, that sort of team dynamic is almost imperative if you want to be successful in cardiothoracic surgery. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, and, you know, as a general thoracic surgeon, my team is, you know, myself, my my immediate colleagues, um, my interventional pulmonologist, and not my, but, you know, the interventional pulmonologist with whom I work, the interventional gastroenterologist with whom I work, um, you know, those are kind of your core group. And, you know, if you're fortunate to have someone who is a gastroenterologist interested in foregut, and these are the people whose cell phones you are calling and they're calling your cell phones on, you know, a daily or weekly basis to, um, you know, run cases, support each other back and forth, you know, they support you, you support them. And uh, those dynamics are, are invaluable. And I think they, they bring a certain sense of meaning to your work because you're not just your one person, you know, kind of slogging it through, you know, you, you kind of have a battalion, um, you know, at the ready and, and you can also reach out and help someone else. So um, I can't speak highly enough of that approach and for anyone starting out you know, you, you build those relationships and, and they happen naturally, but you do really want to not take them for granted. Yeah, now you're at uh, uh, IHA Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery. So that's uh, outside the academic realm uh, uh, in a community-based practice. What led you to that transition? I think for me, um, clinical medicine was always something that I um, excelled at. You know, I am a, I would say, you know, my strength is my, you know, patient to patient interactions and my um, uh, clinical decision making and, you know, um, I value a high, high operative volume. Um, and, and so those were things that I wanted maybe a little bit more of. Um, I recognize that there are different ways and flavors. And, and this was a practice that allowed me to still maintain somewhat of a academic type practice in that there are two of us who are de dedicated general thoracic surgeons. Uh, we're very well supported. So we're able to maintain 
the um, same high level multidisciplinary care. Um, you know, we have frequent tumor boards, we have lung cancer screening, we've got clinical trials for a patient, you know, so I don't really feel like I gave up much um, other than, you know, maybe a promotion time clock or something, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> from, or, and then you probably got better parking. Actually, it's 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 not covered parking here, and there's more snow, so no. <laughs> not covered. So you, you got to dig out your car. I mean, if it snows during the day, yeah. <laughs> oh so, what skill sets in your previous stops uh, that you learned, whether it's New Orleans and St. Louis, what skill sets did you take from those academic environments, and then apply them to your current environment, your community-based practice to to optimize your practice in your clinic? Um, so I think the, um, I think the collaborative um, kind of pre-surgical planning approach is, is probably the, the main thing. Um, you know, the operations are the same pretty much, um, but that pre-surgical thoughtful planning and, and you know, collaboration on, you know, especially, you know, your kind of more marginal high risk patients, et cetera, um, is something that I've, I've taken with me. Um, and certainly here, this has been a, a very fruitful environment to continue that. Um, with respect to surgery, like I said, you know, the operations are, are pretty similar in that regard. So, um, you know, I'm doing probably more minimally invasive surgery here where there I was doing, you know, more bigger open cases just because of the um, referral patterns. And then your partner is Dr. Kamari Adams. Yep. And I think it's, uh, it's reflective of the modern state of our specialty that you have a general thoracic surgery group that's composed entirely of black women. And so that, that's sort of a, a, this is not your grandfather's cardiothoracic surgery specialty. Not by any means. Um, you know, do I wish there were more departments that looked like ours? Absolutely. Um, hopefully we can serve as an example for what is possible um, because I, I think we represent um, thoracic surgery well and represent what is possible well. Dr. Adams is a phenomenal technical surgeon and just a great individual. So, um, you know, I feel fortunate to be in, in an environment like this. So in, you also are very active, as we mentioned before, in STS, uh, specifically the Workforce for Diversity and Inclusion. Um, but you're also chair of the education task force for the STS workforce on career development. And, and you're also uh, a member of the, the STS general thoracic surgery database task force. Why so involved in the STS? And, you know, what, what messages do you have for other physician employee individuals and community-based practices who are looking to assert themselves on the national stage? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think STS involvement is limited to the quote unquote academic realm, because remember, there's there's overlap at this point, I think we're getting to a point where the lines are, are blurred. 
And I think it's very important to have community-based representation for a diversity of opinions. Um, remember, diversity is not limited to uh, gender, ethnicity, but it's also limited. It's also encompassing experiences. So, um, so, so I felt it was important to continue to be involved in that regard so that um, the nuances of community-based practice can be uh, represented both to help the STS in terms of decision-making as well as, you know, keep that awareness going. Um, I've um, also recently been involved in the um, task force for the resident symposium. I'm very excited about that um, opportunity because again, um, you know, I've seen both sides of it and I think I, I have a lot to contribute for residents who may wonder, you know, which is the right path and the right path is not necessarily, it's not a black and white line either or, you know, you can make your practice whatever you want. Um, if I decided I wanted to write five papers a year, I can still do that here because um, our organization has a residency program and, and support to be able to do that. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think it's possible and encouraged. And you have residents who, who rotate with you now, general surgery residents. Yeah, we have general surgery residents and um, certainly um, several of them, not several, I think we've had a few express interest in thoracic surgery, which is always exciting. And I, and I think it's, it, it's, it's important for residents to get that, as you mentioned it, that, that diverse practice um, experience and practice management experience um, that will allow them to make really intelligent decisions in regards to where they take their career path and, um, and help them manage their practice when they sort of inherit the, the, uh, the clinical world, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think many of us grew up, so to speak, through our uh, medical education, wanting to mirror our mentors, right? And um, replicate the practices that we trained under because that's all we saw and that's all we knew and not really understanding that you can take some of the elements that may uh, speak more to your long-term desires, your personal goals, your, um, you know, what your values, you know, the things that are truly important to you. And you don't necessarily have to be a carbon copy of, you know, Keith Nonheim or Richard Prager, you know, you can um, take, take the parts that, that speak to you and, and make your own practice and, your own way. Now you're, you know, talked about making your own way. Your your mom is a retired uh, high school teacher, and your dad's an optometrist. And I think you're the first MD in the family. Um, in in my yeah immediate family, um, I have an uncle who's a retired uh, emergency room physician. And first, but, um. And yeah, oh yeah, first. absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. And then, and especially with a with the American system, you, you saw challenges in help having someone help you navigate the medical education experience and the cardiothoracic experience. How did you navigate it? You know, what did you do to provide yourself with the resources to succeed and excel in in CT surgery? Oh, that's a great question. I think. Um, 
relying on on colleagues you know we had talked about the visiting clerkship program you know how did I hear about that it was kind of through the grapevine and um, that did provide an, an opportunity to kind of see more but I, I will say there were there were probably maybe some limits you know if I look back you know there were areas where if I'd known a little bit more I might have you know f- made different choices and and you know we all, you know, look back in the retrospective scope uh, from time to time. Um, so I, I think for me, the core things were I was raised to value hard work and, um, you know, kind of um, conscientiousness and, um, you know, following things through. And I, I think those were the primary tools that I used. Um, so, you know, where they say work smarter, not harder, I was a work harder, not necessarily smarter person. And, and that kind of um, made up for not necessarily understanding, say, networking or what networking really meant or, you know, how really important it was to um, establish networks and relationships to, to kind of guide you. You know, a case in point, I um, learned about the Society of Black Academic Surgeons when I was a CTU resident. I did not know this existed when I was a general surgery That's resident, same right? As a CTU. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they so, didn't know in Boston. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, you've kind of, like I said, your experiences are vast, you know, whether it's New Orleans or uh, Southern California, the Midwest, uh, East Coast, faith-based institutions and, and uh, large institutions that care for um, uh, at-risk populations, uh, academic community-based, I think you have better insight than anybody. What in your mind is the future of cardiothoracic surgery? That's a great question. I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is maintaining and, and constantly improving the, the quality of, of, of care that we provide. Um, you know, enhanced recovery programs are kind of a way, some of us poo-poo them, but I think it's, there's value in standardizing and really um, constantly looking and examining what you're doing, why you're doing it, is it working and is it providing value to the patients and is it providing value to the institution? You know, we've certainly all learned with COVID that institutional resources are not limitless. Resources are not limitless. And so it, it's been a nice reminder and something that I've, I've learned is you have to be smart with what you have and use it as effectively as you can. Um, certainly equitable access to you know, lung cancer screening, I think is something that we need to make some more moves on and is a future direction that we as a specialty probably need to address more than we have. Um, education certainly and uh, opening our doors and making sure that we increase the diversity within our population. And then from a lung cancer standpoint, um, you know, how our targeted uh, therapy integrates into our own surgical practice it will be interesting to see. Well, thank you very much, Melanie. This has been a, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on, on Same Surgeon, uh, Different Light. And it's been exciting to hear your, your origin story. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, 
trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.